Okay, so first of all, were there any leftover questions from Chapter 2 that uh, you wanted to ask? I'm sure Craig would be happy to answer those. (laughs) Anything at all? Okay, well, turn to Philippians Chapter 3. And can I get a volunteer to read the first 11 verses? That's our goal, but we might not hit that. Who knows? Mark. (coughs) Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who work who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, <coughs> that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, thank you. So he starts off. Finally. So, Paul's about to conclude, right? That's what comes to my mind when I see the word finally, but I also happen to know that Philippians is four chapters, and this is the first verse of chapter three, so this is about as close to the middle as you can get. So, perhaps finally doesn't mean finally the way that we would think of that and uh, in fact that is the case Uh, apparently that word uh, in the Greek can mean several things it can mean kind of in conclusion but a lot of times it's just used as a transition from one subject to another and so that appears to be the case here Uh, and it's used that way several other times in the scriptures as well So he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. It's a theme we find repeated in the book of Philippians. And why would he tell them to rejoice? What basis would they have for rejoicing or having joy? What do you think? 
Don't everyone speak at once. <laughs> there have been a couple of different things that he says should produce joy or rejoicing in them, even things that we wouldn't normally think of, like his being poured out like a drink offering should be kind of rejoicing. Yep. Yeah, we talked about his sufferings and having joy in sufferings, which, you know, strikes us as a little strange to start with, but uh, uh, but it actually kind of fits. Uh, Sarah? I mean, even going back into chapter 1, he's rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed, whether for mm-hmm. good motives or not. It's another one of those. Right. But notice here he says, rejoice in the Lord. So I think that parameter is important. And I think that gives us kind of the basis for rejoicing. Uh, he kind of defines the, the grounds upon which we have the right to rejoice. Being in the Lord. And he's going to talk about that. He has, and he's going to continue to talk about that. And I think he's trying to tell us true spiritual gladness can only be found in the Lord, with those who have a relationship with the Lord. And I've heard it said, and I've said myself, really the only people that have the right to be truly happy are Christians, are people that are following the Lord. Because we have meaning to our life that goes beyond our life. Those who don't have the Lord don't have that meaning. And many of them, when they're facing the end of their life, they feel that emptiness, that vanity. It's like, what was this all for? And for those that don't have the Lord, the answer is nothing. Those things that were so important in life, amassing physical goods, what does that mean at the end of your life? Never seen an armored car in a funeral procession. You can't take it with you. And that's why the scriptures talk about laying up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. Matthew 6. And so, I think he defines that for us in that parameter. Rejoice in the Lord. That that's really important. And he says, and to write the same things again is no trouble to me. So, what do you think he had in mind by the same things? Lord? It was mentioned that he keeps saying rejoice throughout the book. And he's saying, you know, he's exhorting them. And he's saying it's no, you know, it, it doesn't get old. Okay. I would agree with that. Yeah, Leanne? I think 
with Paul being <coughs> in prison, and we can also assume that they're being persecuted, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's just kind of acknowledging that they're all in kind of garbage circumstances, but they can have a greater joy, and then he goes on to give them things, to other things to like, keep looking out for these things, but mm-hmm. you can be content and joyful. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I think included in that... Uh, is some of the things he's talked about uh, at the you know the last few verses of chapter one that we looked at uh, where he's talking about they need to be united in standing fast for the gospel and for the cause of Christ and the importance of doing that uh, and they're standing fast for the faith against a common foe uh, he makes that point late in chapter 1, and really throughout chapter 2, he is talking about their need to be, uni- or be united, to have unity together, and be on guard for themselves and for one another, lest they be led astray. Uh, and so I think that's definitely in what Paul has in mind here. Uh and he admits that I've already written to you about this so it does need to be something that's in the book already Uh, and so that seems to be a a pretty reasonable conclusion and uh, I like the way Leanne you tied that to joy and rejoicing and so did Lloyd Uh, so that's, that's definitely there as well and so Paul's saying and it's, it's no trouble for me. I'm glad to do that because this is really important. We need to get this. Uh, it's going to help us in staying steadfast and being able to have that ultimate joy that we'll have at the end when it's all been worth it. Okay, any thoughts, comments on that? Then, verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of... The translation I'm looking at says false circumcision. Uh, I think there's... I know, Mark, you, you had something different. Mutilation. The mutilation. Okay. Uh what are some other translations? I got the New American Standard. But. ESV says uh, those who mutilate the flesh. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's probably the better translation uh, than false circumcision. Those are the, the mutilation. Uh, in fact, I think this is the only time yeah here it is I know I had this in my notes it's the only time that term is in the New Testament is right there uh, but you know it literally means you know mutilation cutting in pieces um, <coughs> and is translated that way in several of the translations uh, but this is quite a list if you think about it you know and another thing to point out, the definite article 
is in front of each of those three terms. Uh, in Greek, there's a definite article which would tie to our word the or the, but there is no indefinite article that would be our a or an. Uh, and so, sometimes when there's not the definite article there, the translators will put in a or an, uh, but that's can sometimes be dangerous too. Uh, because uh, sometimes the word for God doesn't have the definite article in front of it. Uh, and I know of uh, you know certain uh, groups that don't believe in the deity of Christ will, in their own translations, talk about Christ being a God in those places that don't have the definite article. Uh, but here, the definite article is present in front of all three of these terms. And, uh, you know, some translations have that in and some don't. Uh, but the New American Standard that I'm looking at says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And that's, uh, uh, and since the definite article is there, and so it's emphasizing all three of those. But that's quite a list. Uh, the term dog. We we like dogs generally. Uh, most of them, yeah. I got a commentary that says that the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. That is true. We uh, so we have a better connotation of dogs than they did back then. And you're you're exactly right. Especially the Jews did look at the Gentiles as dogs, calls them dogs, calls them dogs, and that was a you know, derisive term, you know, one that you know meant to put them down. And they were trying to do that. That was not an accident. Uh, but in the in the New Testament you never find the word dogs used in a positive sense. It always has the negative connotation. Sir? Just the, uh, I've got a note here that the dogs are like a wild pack. So you mm, know, don't okay. think about Fluffy and Fido sitting on the couch. <laughs> think about a pack of half wolf kind of critters yes. wanting to tear and mutilate and mm-hmm. destroy. Yeah. And it appears that Paul is using these terms and, you know, saying beware of each of these. You know, he's, he's definitely issuing a warning. But, I don't think it's three different groups. I think these are all terms used for the Judaizing teachers that he's talked about. Uh, so he's emphasizing how bad those are and the dangers that they pose to the Christians and their faith. Uh, and then the term evil workers uh, is work a good thing? generally and it's good to be a worker but when you put evil in front of it then that's not so good and you know those who do evil can be workers at that as well Uh, and these Judaizers were working at that 
they were trying to undermine the faith of the Christians uh, trying to wreak havoc and spiritual ruin among the Christians so uh, uh, so calling them evil workers I think is an appropriate term and one of warning and then you know the mutilation I think the old King James says the concision which didn't mean a whole lot to me but uh, you know this term uh, those that would literally mutilate and cut the flesh Uh, and so it's a pretty strong term Uh, and it's doubtful that Paul would look at the normal ordinary Jews that way that it's the ones that are trying hard to undermine the faith of the Christians that would fall into this category. Uh, so, uh, Paul stands very firmly against them. Uh, and included in that would be those that would teach you got to become a Jew first in order to be saved. And that was definitely out there. You know, we find that uh, discussed in uh, in other passages. You know, Galatians gets into that. Uh, and, and so, uh, a definite uh, problem with that. But then, on the heels of that, we come to verse 3. For we are the true circumcision. So he goes from a false circumcision or those that would mutilate to a true circumcision and he says we so Paul puts himself in that category Uh, so a sharp contrast to those that he's just been talking about Uh, and I think this is referring to himself and the other Christians we're the true circumcision and there's some characteristics there says who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh so there's three terms to describe those that Paul is putting himself in with the true Christians so But he calls them the circumcision, even though the Philippians, for the most part, were they circumcised? No. They were mostly Gentiles. Uh, So he's obviously talking about the spiritual circumcision that uh, Christianity was sometimes called. And Paul certainly makes a distinction between uh, fleshly circumcision and the circumcision of the heart in places like Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And we won't won't take the time to turn and read that, but uh, he makes that distinction there. And Christians, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, would be called the circumcision. Uh, Yeah, Katrina. 
guess in more, I guess our vernacular, you could say the the false covenant keepers and the, the true covenant keepers. Okay. Because um, that was just a sign that they would have known circumcision was was the sign of the covenant keepers. Mm-hmm. So just using that as a okay common parlance for record. Okay. And now, the only circumcision that really matters is the spiritual circumcision. Uh, the fleshly circumcision did not. And he gives those three characteristics, you know, worship God in the spirit. And the term that's used, that's translated worship there, uh, are there some other translations that have something different there? Because... That term is really a more general word that means serve. That's what NIV says. NIV says serve. Okay. That's probably better for this term from from what I was able to determine. Uh, so, you know, serving God and the Spirit. Uh, and then the ones that rejoice or glory in Christ. Uh and are there other terms for glory in some of your other translations? Because I think the word boast can be used. Okay. Yeah. So boasting in Christ uh, fits that word pretty well. Uh, so that's that's a pretty good translation of that. Uh and then saying have no confidence in the flesh which again kind of nails the Judaizers who are emphasizing the physical circumcision and says you know we're not like them we don't put the confidence in the flesh but then Paul does an interesting shift of gears because notice he's He's got, you know, we, there in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. And then starting in verse 4, although I, he starts talking about himself. And for the next few verses, what is he saying about himself? What case is he making? He's saying of all people, I would be the one... That could attest to this flesh. I'm the I'm the probably the best representative here that would uh, be be able to um, manifest like the 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 benefit of this. And I'm telling you, mm-hmm. you got to put it away. Mm-hmm. And adherence to the law and mm-hmm. zeal for the law and following the law and yeah. yes, if anyone had the credentials to put the confidence in the flesh. It was Paul. And so he goes through that. Uh, and he says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence into the flesh, I far more. And so he starts listing these. And he kind of starts at the beginning. Circumcised the eighth day. That's pretty close to his beginning. Now, 
was there significance in being circumcised the eighth day? Yeah. That's what the law required. Uh, it didn't always happen due to circumstances, but that was when it was required. Mm-hmm. That's when it was supposed to happen, to be circumcised, presented, etc., etc. Right. And so, Paul was... Now, were all the descendants of Abraham? No. Uh, Ishmael was circumcised at age 13, I believe. Uh, And then those who were proselytes to the Jewish religion could have been circumcised at, you know, about any age. Uh, But this shows that he was a true Jew from this very early age, he bore that sign of the covenant. Uh, And so, there was significance in that. And then he says, of the nation of Israel, or the stock of Israel, he was of the children of Israel. He was one of Jacob's descendants. Because if you recall, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. And that's where the Israelites got that term. They were descendants of Jacob. So he, Paul belonged to that original stock of Jacob. Uh, again, some of the other descendants of Abraham didn't. The Ishmaelites, uh, they came from Ishmael, not through Isaac and Jacob, The Edomites descended from Isaac, but through Esau, not Jacob. But Paul was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all three of those were given the promise uh, back uh, in Genesis. But then in addition to that, so he's just piling on, says of the tribe of Benjamin. What's significant about that? What do we know about Benjamin? Benjamin. Sarah? Favorite son. Okay. Why would he be a favorite son? He was the youngest, the last. Okay. He was the youngest. What else do we know about him? Of Rachel. Of Rachel, his favorite wife, at least for a while. (laughs) Uh, Anything else of significance with Benjamin? Wasn't the smallest tribe? I believe it was. I believe it was the smallest tribe. Uh, but something about Benjamin that I didn't realize that I ran across, Benjamin was the only one of Jacob's sons born in the land of Palestine. Only one. You know, Joseph was, I think, the next one before Benjamin. And after that, then they moved to the land of Palestine and Benjamin is born. Uh, So, there's some significance to that, I think. Because of, you know, the, the land. This is the promised land. So the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. And then some other things that are significant of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king, 
Saul. Who Paul happened to be named for. Saul of Tarsus. Same name. Uh, And Benjamin was the only tribe that remained true to Judah when the kingdom divided. Uh, And ultimately, those of the kingdom of Judah, so the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, were the only ones that could be considered real Jews once there's the captivity. Uh, Because the northern tribes, uh, when they were captured by Assyria, there was a lot of intermarriage. And so, uh, by the time of of Jesus, I mean, those are the Samaritans. And they're considered half-breeds. And so they're certainly looked down upon by the true Jews as they looked at themselves. Uh, So... There's a lot of significance to being of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, more than I would have thought. Uh, but then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, we know he spoke the Hebrew language. You know, Acts 21 and 22 both tell us that. That Paul did. Uh, and those who were true Jews hung on to that. Most of the other Jews, you know, spoke only Greek. Uh, and so, you could say he, he's made three claims so far. <laughs> Ritual purity through circumcision, racial purity, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, and cultural purity, an Orthodox Hebrew, born of Hebrew parents, speaking the Hebrew language. So he makes quite the case for himself. And then he says, as touching the law, or as to the law, a Pharisee. And so he kind of moves on from the things pertaining to his birth and some of the physical things to what he chose to pursue for himself. He chose to become a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect of the Jews. And and so was looked up to uh, by many. And so he had that credential as well. So, it's like, if you're talking about Jewish credentials... You can't do any better than Paul's. And as Raymond pointed out, all those things meant nothing to him. And he's going to be pointing that out. He's going to hit that point really hard. That I had all these credentials, but they're nothing. They don't gain me what's truly important. And he also, uh, verse 6, as to zeal. Is zeal a good thing? Sometimes. Most of the time, maybe. As long as it's the right thing. But what did Paul have zeal for? 
says, a persecutor of the church. So, he had zeal, but at that time for the wrong thing. Yeah, Karen? I find it interesting that he feels the need to go through this. I, I don't know that we know a whole lot about the church there and what the Jewish influence would have been. It doesn't seem like there was much, but clearly there was some. And it's interesting that he takes the time to lay this out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the point is a powerful point, but mm-hmm. do we have any indication of what that influence would have been? Yeah, I don't know. I I think because he did that, there must have been considerable influence. Uh, but I don't know specifics of that. Brad, you? I, well, I, I can only speculate, but it seems to me that the same way that we kind of have um, a general idea of the culture of, of even people that aren't our own culture, like um, I might even speculate as to like what might be important to people who are British, you know, I might mm-hmm. kind of know some of the things that are important to them and what they would kind of be proud of and boast in, and he's kind of mentioned all those things, even though these people might not have been Jews, they probably knew what was important to could be. a typical Jew. That could be. And thought about that. Because we definitely do have our ideas of other cultures. And I've had a little experience with some other cultures. And some of my experiences are very different than what I expected. Uh, particularly of China. I mean, I had, I had an expectation of China that wasn't all that great. And so, before I went over there, I was, uh, shall we say, a little apprehensive. And Deborah was downright scared. <laughs> but it was nothing like what we expected. Uh, which causes me to conclude that the Chinese people in the Chinese government are pretty different from one another. That was our experience. Uh, very friendly, hospitable people uh, who actually like Americans and look up to them. But uh, I, I, th- I don't look at the government in that same way at all. Yeah, Chris. I would hope people see us quite a bit different from our government. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. That, those, are, those are some good thoughts. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Yeah, Craig. Um, I almost wonder if maybe they haven't yet encountered it. <laughs> These Judaizing teachers yet, but that's what verse two is about. He's basically saying, "Watch out! Watch out! Could be coming." Okay, because we do know that, that they were pretty persistent to follow Paul around and cause True. trouble for him. So you know, it, it may be here's some things to watch out for. Okay. If they start saying these things about my credentials, look, I'm as Jew as as Jewish as they come, but none of that matters right. when it comes to Christ. Right. Raymond? He just finished it right there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah? Good job. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
So, you know, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Uh, now, the interesting thing about Paul, when he was a persecutor of the church, he thought he was doing what's right. He wasn't going out, you know, I don't care what God says, I want to do what I want to do. No. Uh, and he testifies, you know, in Acts 26 and verse 9 and 23 and verse 1 about I've lived in all good conscience before God unto this day and I thought I should do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. He was convinced that he was doing the right thing. And if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, then Paul was doing the right thing. And that's something we need to to keep in mind. And so, Paul definitely thought he was doing what God wanted him to do when he was persecuting Christians, putting them in jail, putting them to death. He was convinced that's what he needed to do. And he was following the law. Little did he realize that he was doing just what Jesus had told his disciples would happen. That there would be those who would persecute them. And whoever kills you thinks he's doing God's service. John 16 verse 2. Uh, and then in Galatians 1.14, Paul said his zeal for his own nation and the law that made him so zealous in persecuting Christians and how he persecuted them beyond measure. But he was convinced he was doing what was right. And I think that's a quality that made him so good for what the Lord called him to do. He was going to do what he found to be right, regardless of the obstacles. So, the Lord knew what he was doing when he called Saul of Tarsus. Shouldn't surprise us. And you know, from my experiences, some of the people that are the best prospects are those who are very zealous in what they do religiously. That they're very convinced that what they're doing is right. Even though it may not be what the scripture says at all. And there's people like that out there. And when you show them what the scriptures teach and they become convinced of that those are the kind of people who will be receptive it's like well I thought I was doing right all along but now I see this isn't what the Bible teaches and they have the conviction to make the change whereas somebody that doesn't seem to care all that much and it's like oh you do your thing I'll do my thing it doesn't really matter those tend to not be as good a prospects as somebody who's firmly convinced that what they're practicing 
and what they've been taught is right. So I think the word zeal is a good definition or the word to put in there. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. And then, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So, Paul's saying he was perfect, right? No. Sometimes blameless is uh, looked on as being sinless, and it's not that. Uh, But they couldn't find fault with him. Not that he was perfect, but he he did what he thought was right all along. An example of that would be um, Luke chapter 1, verse 6, talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And that's that idea of following properly the law mm-hmm. um, in that whole. Yeah, concept. doing their best. Yeah. Okay. So, he builds this case for himself. And then verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. These things that were so important to me, I came to find out those things didn't mean anything when it came to Christ. Before he knew Christ, he valued those things. But he no longer saw those things as being valuable. He had cut he had come to consider them to be loss for the sake of Christ. They had no value in bringing him to Christ. And once he was convinced that Christ was who he said he was, then I need to follow him. And these things don't mean anything. He goes on in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So, he adds a little word here in verse 8. I count all things. There's significance to that. He's now kind of moving to the present. These were the things in the past, but now I count all things to be loss for the cause of Christ. So, this could include a lot of things could include his Roman citizenship, any material possessions he had, the position he had in the world, certainly the regard that the Jewish nation had for him. Meaningless. Yeah, Brad, do you have your hand up? Yeah, I, uh, I was trying to not jump the gun on 
I thought that I had, and then I think we blew right past it. Okay. Well, <laughs> we can go back. That's fine. Well, I think it relates to this a little bit. So it was interesting to me that he's, he's talking about um, confidence in the flesh. Um, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists all these things, and several of them I would have said were, were the flesh. But then he gets down to the end, and some of those things couple of those things at the end, I wouldn't have necessarily said were fleshly things like um, zeal. Uh, that sounds like a heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and righteousness under the law, mm-hmm. to me on the surface, doesn't sound like a fleshly thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, and I and I get the context here is the Jewish um, uh, influence and the teachers, people trying to um, teach uh, Judaism as the, the the current law in order to receive Christ, mm-hmm. and he's saying even that. But it's just interesting to me that um, even that he he gives up, and um, I wonder if maybe even there is a tendency to boast in our uh, keeping of God's word as what we we find value in or we find worth in, and we can even boast in the fact that, you know what, uh, kind of like the Pharisee did, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Mm-hmm. I keep the law. I always pray. I am I do pretty much everything that God tells me, so I'm a pretty good person, so God's lucky to have me on his side and on his team and in his in His kingdom. So, um, But even that, I think we have to be willing to throw out to the curb and say, that is not what I'm boasting in. And even though I may be able to make some claims there, I'm going to throw that away in order to gain Christ, which is really where I find salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay, good point. Sir. And as a little geeky note, um, if you count these up, there are seven characteristics that he talks about. Okay. Circumcised nation, tribe, Hebrew, Pharisee, persecutor, and righteousness. So he's... Going with the whole seven completeness thing. Uh-huh. He has complete confidence in the flesh if he needed it, but it turns out to be that it's uh, human sewage to him now. So. Right. Yeah. I had missed that. That's a good point. Yeah. And, yeah, the righteousness in the law, that was only going to do any good if you were perfect. And he knew he was not perfect. And so, dependence on that would separate him from the grace that's found in Christ. So, uh, and so he wanted to get rid of anything that stood between him and Christ. Uh, so, all this stuff uh, that had great value paled in comparison to the value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And uh, you know, that statement Christ Jesus my Lord I think is only found here put together that way so that's 
a very intensely personal way of looking at it. Uh, But to Paul, that's what that was. So, he saw value in knowing Christ. And we need to as well. And knowing Christ means more than just knowing about Christ. There's a difference. There's a lot of people that know about Christ, but really don't know Christ. And we need to make sure we don't fall into that trap. Because we know a lot about Christ. But ask yourself, do you really know Christ? Leanne. I really appreciate that he says, um, I'm not even sure if you're a nine, but he says, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith. I think this is kind of Paul's recognition that he can't do it. You know, he was quote unquote blameless, but that what, what gave him freedom um, was recognizing that it, it all comes from God and all it depends on is faith. And there was no way he could work himself into this. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's definitely in there. Raymond? There's also, Brad may like this, because there's there's financial talk in here of like, uh, <laughs> there's gain uh, counted as loss. Uh-huh. I count everything as loss, surpassing worth, suffered loss, count them, uh, gain Christ, and also share his sufferings, and then finally the attain the resurrection from the dead. It makes me think of the rich young ruler. Is that the story I'm thinking of where Jesus says, uh, you know, sell everything that you have? Because what he was boasting was was keeping the law from a youth. And if he was possessing it and owning it, I don't know so much if he was talking about possessions as if he was talking about spiritually what, what you think you have in the kingdom does not equal any value over here. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll try to finish chapter three on Sunday. Thank you for your comments.